sorry about that. Welcome to the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum. I'm Rob Lyons, and as well as being Science and Technology Director at the Academy of Ideas, I'm also the convener of the Economy Forum. What we do to what we do to recover from the coronavirus has been a major question for the past few months. But two events in recent weeks seem to make tonight's discussion particularly timely. First, there was the election of Joe Biden as president, despite what the Donald claims about voting fraud. And a key part of his platform was a plan for, green, for a green energy revolution and environmental justice. And then last week, Boris Johnson announced his 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution. So it's very clear that future economic plans are going to be dominated by environmental concerns. Um, is there anything wrong with that? I think we're about to find out. Uh, before I introduce our speaker, I just want to say that the Academy of Ideas has been determined that throughout this year, while physical life is often locked down, intellectual life must not be. We've worked all the way through without putting staff on furlough, relying on support from donations. So if you would like to chip in with the price of a pint or even a large round uh, to support our work, please visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. I'm delighted we have Daniel Benami to introduce this discussion. Daniel is an economics journalist and commentator and the author of Cowardly Capitalism and Ferraris for All in Defence of Economic Progress. He's also a regular here at the Economy Forum. So Daniel's going to speak for about 20 minutes or so, and then we'll have plenty of time to discuss his arguments on the wider uh, situation. So hopefully I can find uh, Daniel and... Away you go, the floor is yours. Okay, great. Well, thanks, Rob, and uh, hello, everyone. Uh, sorry we can't do this in person, but hopefully uh, sometime early next year. Uh, I haven't told Rob this, but I'm, I've slightly tweaked the theme of my talk. It's still very closely related to what it's billed as, but I'm going to talk about what has, over the last few months, since we started talking about the possibility of discussing this subject, it's become more and more known as the Great Reset, or sometimes uh, Building Back Better, which both Boris Johnson in the UK and Joe Biden in the US use. And that's really the idea that, uh, of course, we've had a terrible time with the uh, COVID-19 virus. I mean, everyone on all sides of the argument accepts that. Uh, but we've got to take advantage of a difficult situation and build back better with a, a greener, cleaner, more pleasant kind of economy. We've got to find lots of jobs for people because unemployment will rise. So that increasingly is the way that the discussion is, fr is framed. Uh, and just to preview what I'm going to argue, it's essentially that we do need a reset, but not at all a reset of the type that is being posed by Boris Johnson, Joe Biden, the EU, Prince Charles, and many others. So what the build, Building Back Better crew argue, uh, and there are different variations of this, but just to, if I can sum up their argument before doing a critique of it, it's really, it's saying, well, look, if you look at what's happened in the last few months, uh, we've had terrible, trouble with COVID-19, uh, but there are silver linings. Have, uh, for example, carbon emissions have gone down. Uh, <clears throat> the world has become cleaner. 
Uh, and this is the kind of silver lining. This is the way, this is not my view, this is the way they put it. Uh, this is the kind of silver lining uh, to the crisis. And what we need to do is to consolidate on these gains and go even further uh, and go to a new kind of economy, which is cleaner, safer, healthier, a kind of new normal, if you like, which is much better than the old normal. Uh, and it's often framed in terms of, we're doing this for the sake of the children. Children are the future is becoming almost a cliche uh, with some of these people. So it's usually framed in a very optimistic way. Uh, it's not usually pitched as a pessimistic argument, on the contrary, it's usually pitched as very optimistic. And what's being argued is that for the sake of our children, for the sake of future generations, what we have to do is to uh, take advantage of the silver lining of the crisis, uh, build back better, have a cleaner, brighter, more job-rich kind of future. Now, if you're gonna get one thing out of this talk, I think perhaps the most important, uh, certainly one of the most important points, I would argue, is that this green perspective is not really about pollution, or fundamentally it's not about pollution or the environment or climate change, although they have views on all of those subjects, and they talk about it a lot. What this green view is really about, and I want to explore this in my talk, it's really about holding society back. It's really saying what we've got to do is accept natural limits on humanity. So if as human beings we go too far in terms of technology and economic output and progress and growth, uh, we cause all sorts of problems. So it is a kind of view of the relationship between man and nature, but it's also very much a view about society. It's really a, a view about how humans should hold themselves back, how they should rein in their ambitions. Uh, otherwise, we're going to cause, cause all sorts of trouble for ourselves and for the planet. That is very much the view being put forward in this uh, Build Back Better perspective. Uh, it's a, so it's about making do with less. It's about a particular kind of green austerity, I would argue. Uh, but I would argue that this view doesn't solve our problems, it makes them worse. It doesn't help us deal with poverty, it entrenches poverty. Uh, what I would argue, just to preview what I'm really going to get at in my talk, is that uh, what we need to do is to have a completely opposite approach to the one that is embodied in green thinking. And when I'm talking about green thinking, I'm talking about not a few tree huggers, I'm talking about what I think is the main form of thinking uh, across the Western elites in, in Europe and North America uh, and increasingly other places too. So in contrast to that, what I would argue is we need to try and overcome the challenges we face. So we certainly face real challenges, political, social, uh, even environmental challenges. But what we need to do is not to say, oh, okay, well, let's hold back. Let's make a less productive society. Let's decrease economic output. On the contrary, what we need to do is to go forward to make a more prosperous society and to maximize human freedom rather than restraining freedom. And that's why, despite the, what most critics of this approach call themselves, I would never call myself a skeptical environmentalist or a green of any sort or an eco-modernist, because I don't think those things really refer to 
caring about clean air or clean water or that kind of stuff. It's really about green thinking, in my view, is very mainstream among the elites and the middle class, and it's a very misanthropic view. It's about holding humanity back. Okay, so now to go into a bit more detail about what is meant by the uh, green reset and who's promoting the idea of the green reset. Green reset. It is very, very pervasive among uh, all the Western elites and among many middle-class people too. Uh, in Britain, for example, uh, Prince Charles, to some degree, has been the figurehead of this. Uh, because he's been involved with the World Economic Forum, which for people who don't know is a kind of forum for technocrats and plutocrats who, who meet on, in Davos, in the Swiss ski resort of Davos every year, they used to, uh, not recently because of COVID-19, they would literally fly into Davos in their private jets and tell people that they should be more concerned about carbon emissions and the environment and extreme inequality, which that's not a caricature, that's literally uh, what they did. So Prince Charles is one of the advocates of this. The World Economic Forum uh, is an advocate in different ways, the Conservative and Labour Party in the UK. As Rob mentioned in his talk, Joe Biden, uh, the European Union is very, very big in the European Union. Uh, there it's kind of mixed up with their discussion of having a more integrated uh, economic region in the EU, which is not the subject of my talk. But there are di di different variations of the idea of the green, Great Reset and building back better, but broadly speaking, they're pretty similar. Although there are variations from country to country and between different people, very similar ideas. So I'm going to focus mainly on the British discussion. But with a few tweets, you could say very similar things about the EU or about the US, I think. Uh, although other people may have different views, that's my take on it anyway. And maybe start not with uh, the kind of plan put forward by Boris Johnson, which I want to talk about in a minute. And I've, people may have seen on the chat, I've put a link to the government booklet on that, but maybe more mundane, uh, example of it, which you may have seen, I mean, I've seen it walking around London. I've not really been outside London very much since the pandemic, but I know it's true in other places in Britain. And that's what's happened to uh, transport systems. I mean, to some people it might seem a very mundane kind of thing, but if you walk around London, you'll see that there's an awful lot more cycle lanes than there were before. Uh, Often pavements have been made a lot wider. Uh, driving by car has been made a lot more difficult. And this is, I mean, sometimes explicitly, if you listen to what local councils are saying, explicitly discussed in terms of the Great Reset or building back better. Because the idea is that with the pandemic, people have been driving less because they haven't been driving to work or they haven't been. Uh, driving to see family because they're not allowed to because of all the rules and whatever. So what local councils have done, partly surreptitiously, partly they've made a big bit of a thing of it, is they've said, okay, well, there are fewer cars on the road. Let's make these cycle lanes wider. Let's make the pavements wider to help people social distance. Uh, it's going to be good. It's good for cutting carbon emissions. Uh, it's good for the environment. You know, really positive all round. That's the way it's presented. And I would argue, like a lot of these things, it seems unimpeachable, but 
actually is quite problematic. Uh, when you start uh, uh, putting restrictions on cars driving around, you know, a lot of people make their living through driving, it's a problem. People want to see their friends and family in their cars, it's a problem in that respect. Uh, many other respects too, you know, families with young kids, uh, or if they've got heavy shopping, or if they're not that well, uh, if, you know, if they're, they're elderly or frail, you know, what is presented as a really positive reset, good for the planet, good for the environment, you know, should be welcomed all around. Once you start thinking about it, you begin to see, well, it's not a completely clear and cut case. In fact, on the contrary, there are real problems with this mini version of the Great Reset or Building Back Better. Uh, and I would argue there are problems with the, the more macro, bigger version too. It's interesting looking at the government's plan uh, in Britain, uh, the 10 point plan for Building Back Better. Uh, I've, as I said, I've circulated this. You can look at the link if you want to. Uh, but just briefly going through the main points, offshore wind, quadrupling it by 2030, greener public transport, uh, jet zero, uh, they use the term, uh, and green ships, greener buildings, carbon capture and storage, protecting the natural environment, uh, green finance and innovation, and they do, it's interesting, and we can discuss this, it, it is interesting, they do talk about nuclear power, even nuclear fusion, which might seem to go against the grain a bit. But overall, this is a very informed, I would argue, by a very green perspective. So that's not to say that every single measure is negative, uh, but the kind of intellectual framework and political framework that informs it, I think, is problematic. The idea is that there will be 12 billion pounds of government investment uh, in these schemes, which actually is not a lot in the scheme of things in terms of government uh, spending. And maybe it will attract maybe three times as much from the private sector. It will create, so it's argued, 250,000 green jobs, and they'll be high skilled, high quality, highly paid jobs, allegedly, that's what it's claimed. Uh, and as I said, there's very similar plans in, in other countries too. Now, what do I think is wrong with this? It does seem uh, unimpeachable in many ways. Who, who could be against clean air, clean water, more jobs, all the rest of it. Uh, and very often the approach to it for people who are a little bit critical is very defensive. So, oh, well, of course, you know, of course, I think it's very important to have clean, clean, clean air and so on. But I think the, to the extent there are critiques of these ideas, and these are very much mainstream ideas, I think the critiques are very limited. I mean, not necessarily entirely wrong in every case, but very limited. So for example, you know, you can take the piss out of Prince Charles for being out of touch, which, you know, I think it's fair enough. I mean, he allegedly, has a servant or butler to squeeze the toothpaste on his toothbrush every morning because obviously being a royal, he can't do it himself. So, you know, you can take the piss out of him for being out of touch, which I'm sure he is, but that isn't really a sufficient critique, I would argue, of what's going on here. It really underestimates the scale of it. Another critique you get, and this I think is profoundly mistaken, is when people start critiquing 
degrowth. So degrowth really is the idea that uh, we should stop growing as a, as a world, we should stop growing at all, or maybe we should even shrink economic output. So some people who critique these ideas say, well, degrowth is really, really bad because we have to have economic growth. Now, the problem with this is not that I'm in favor of degrowth, on the contrary, I'm entirely against it. The problem is that generally speaking, the advocates of the Great Reset don't believe in degrowth and they don't advocate degrowth. So when you come across an advocate of degrowth, it's completely fair enough to argue against them and argue against it in their own terms. But typically, if you read what the British government is saying or the IMF or the EU, what they will typically argue is that uh, this goes together with more economic growth. So yes, we'll have a more uh, a better environment, but we'll also have better jobs and we'll have more prosperity as well. Uh, and what I want to, want to go on to argue is that to the extent they believe this, I think there's an element of bad faith in this discussion because I think some of them don't believe it, some of them do. Uh, but I think there are in, internal contradictions in their arguments. So even if they, you give them the benefit of the doubt, even if they truly believe that you can square the kind of green approach with uh, dynamic economic growth, uh, I don't think you can do it. I think it's a fundamentally contradictory view. Another critique which I think is wrong is, and this is more prevalent I think in America than in Britain, is to say that the Green New Deal or the Green Industrial Revolution or whatever you want to call it, is actually left-wing. It's a kind of radical socialist wish list. It's a Trojan horse for socialism. Uh, these are terms that have been used in the US to describe the kind of Green New Deal kind of ideas. And of course, it does depend what you mean by socialism. Uh, if you mean a kind of uh, the state playing a much greater role in directing how society is run, then yeah, maybe there's a grain of truth in that, although the state already plays a very large role in any case. But if you mean socialism in the historical sense of increasing working class living standards, increasing the living standards of ordinary people, uh, if you mean something that reflects the interests of ordinary people, I would say it's very far from socialism. In fact, it's a very anti-socialist agenda, even though it's true that there are a lot of people today who identify themselves as left-wing, I think mistakenly, who support this kind of approach. And the final uh, approach that I think is wrong is to argue, well, it doesn't go far enough. We need even more uh, of a, a, even more ambitious Green New Deal. Uh, I think that's just completely wrong. I think the last thing we need is more of it. What we need is a completely different kind of approach. So what are the real problems uh, with the Great Reset, uh, in my view? Uh, I mean, you can look at it at a kind of superficial level, which, you know, there's some reason to do that. I think it kind of just doesn't get to grips with the real problems that we're faced with on a day-to-day -day level. level. So, for example, in relation to public, in relation to transport, it looks likely because of the debt the government has built up that public transport is going to get more expensive and there'll be even less of it, even though I think it's desirable. Looks likely that's going to happen. Uh, London Transport has talked in those terms. 
it looks likely, and the, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, is going to be talking about this on Wednesday, his uh, Chancellor statement, that in, in the real world, living standards are going to be squeezed in various ways, probably through tax rises and fuel price rises and so on. So it doesn't get to grips with the real problems that people are facing. But I don't think that's the fundamental problem. I think the fundamental problem is that the most important thing in terms of building a more economically prosperous society is to increase productivity, to raise productivity. Uh, and apologies for the economic forum regulars who will know what this means, but just to be clear about what this means, what I'm really talking about, or what is really meant by productivity, is the amount that each worker produces in a given amount of time. So just to give a very simple, maybe oversimple example, you know, if one person produces one share in a day, you know, that's a certain level of productivity. If that person then produces two chairs in a day, then he's become twice as productive. Uh, and obviously in the real world, it's more complicated than that because you might not produce just two chairs, you might produce better quality chairs, but obviously produce things other than chairs. Uh, so in reality, it's more complicated, but nevertheless, I think rising productivity is the absolute fundamental to having a better, economy and making people better off. And remember, we still live in a world where there's billions and billions of people living in relative poverty. I mean, less than say $2 a day. Uh, so on a global scale, it's very clear we need to raise productivity. But I would argue even in Britain and the developed West, we need to raise productivity. So, I mean, Paul Krugman, for example, who's a completely mainstream economist and who I, who I disagree with on many things, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, but his famously said, uh, productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. So, and I think he's right on that point. I think he is really right in relation to the economy, at least. I'm not talking about things outside of the economy, but in relation to the economy, if you want to have a more prosperous, better society, what you need to do is to increase productivity. And I haven't got time to go into it now, but Phil Mullen, who I think is on this uh, call, has written a whole book about this, talking about how we need to have creative destruction in order to uh, have a more productive society. But what's really happened in the, since the 1970s, really, is that productivity growth has slowed rather than got faster. So productivity has been rising, but at an increasingly slow rate, if that makes sense. So a lower percentage every decade. Uh, so if we don't have a real productivity revolution, it looks as though the problem will become even more severe after the COVID crisis. Uh, and I should say that this productivity is not just about producing things, although that is very important. It is also linked to mobility. So in other words, if you restrict mobility, if you make it harder for people to drive around, including businesses and to drive around, drive goods around and so on, that also makes it harder to uh, raise productivity. So a lot of these green measures by restricting mobility are also in that way too, restricting mobility. What in fact the, the green, one of the, the fundamental 
flaws of the, this, these great reset policies, uh, you can see in relation to the dis discussion of jobs and jobs, I mean, that's becoming a big discussion. Hopefully it will become an even bigger discussion in the coming period, because it's pretty clear that unemployment will go up when the COVID, uh, the fellow schemes and other schemes uh, run out. But what they're talking about is the central element, all of these green policies is to create jobs. And it's almost invariably the emphasis is on things like retrofitting old houses. So taking old Victorian or Edwardian or maybe slightly newer houses, which generally are pretty leaky and sending people in to uh, just make them a bit more energy efficient. Uh, I mean, that's not the only kind of green job, but that's a very typical kind of uh, example that's almost always, almost invariably used in these uh, great reset policies. The problem is, if you think about it, this is incredibly low productive work. I mean, if you think about the amount of effort used to push people into these green jobs and then to try and make a very leaky old Edwardian or Victorian house, make it more energy efficient, it's just you know, completely uh, not likely to be very effective in any case, take a lot of effort, and those people are being pushed into low productivity jobs. And the same is true for the vast majority of so-called green jobs, you know, people working uh, whatever in, in national parks or with uh, solar power or, and so on. They're often celebrated for being low productivity jobs. Uh, so there's a fundamental contradiction here. If, if what you really want to do to improve the economy is to raise productivity, once you start pushing people into all these low productivity jobs, uh, you're not going to raise productivity, you're going to lower productivity, you're going to exacerbate the problem. Yeah, another couple of minutes, Daniel. Oh, okay. So, uh, okay, I'll go very, very quickly. I've almost come to my conclusion anyway. Uh, that, so that, that's not to say that you might want, you know, you, you might want to create jobs as a matter of social policy. Uh, so, for example, there's a real case for having more people employed in care homes at the moment. I think that, that that's actually very important. But in order to do that, uh, you, I think you have to separate economic policy from social policy. If that's what you decide to do, that's fine. But that is really part of your social policy. And in order to be able to afford to do that, need to have a much more productive kind of economy. Uh, I'll skip up, I was gonna talk more about energy and uh, climate change in more detail, but just to come to my conclusion then about what kind of reset we need, because as I said, I'm not, mine is not a conservative argument. I'm certainly not saying we should keep things as they are. We do need to have a great reset, but I think at least four things I would say about the reset. We need to raise productivity, Whereas that is really played down, if not contradicted, in all these green, uh, green growth uh, policies. We need to raise productivity. We need to increase mobility, not decrease mobility. Uh, yes, creating jobs can have a, uh, an important role. But from an economic perspective, what we want to do is to try to create jobs in the productive economy, in new productive areas of the economy. If we do it for social reasons, that's fine, but we need to recognize that's why we're doing it. Uh, and in terms of climate change and energy policy, we need a lot more energy. You don't need to 
focus on energy efficiency, we need to produce more energy and have a you know, more to, so we can have more economic output because that's what we're going to need if we're going to have a better, more productive, more prosperous society. So yes, yeah, let's have a great reset, but not the kind of green reset, which is the kind of reset favoured by the elites. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Daniel. Um, covered a lot there and obviously more, more to say as well. So uh, very useful. So um, for people who have, I mean, I'm sure the vast majority of people have used Zoom by now, but if you haven't, um, if you're on a desktop, uh, you'll find at the bottom of your screen a button called Participants. If you click on that, you'll not only be able to know who is on the um, on this uh, discussion, but also there's a there's a box that says raise hand. And if you raise that, if you want to speak, then a little blue hand will appear next to your name and I'll be able to uh, select you to speak. And the first person who's done that is Alex Cameron. So Alex, if you could uh, unmute yourself and fire away. Uh, thanks, Daniel. Daniel, you obviously you're far too young to remember the 70s. Um, um, things like campaigns, Coal Not Dole was a big campaign in the 70s um, by miners. And in Scotland, it's Our Oil. Now, just we're only talking about a matter of decades, and Coal Not Dole, it's Our Oil, make no sense at all. The argument has been won, the industries have been decimated. So <clears throat> while I agree with, certainly agree with a lot of what you're saying, especially the idea, of, um, if I'm understanding you, the lack of ambition, especially coming from Downing Street, my problem here is I think environmentalism, the arguments for a more environmentally friendly future, that argument has in large part been won precisely because I don't see an alternative to environmentalism. And what I guess I mean by that is, is while I think I understand your argument that what we need is an emphasis on productivity, my question would be, where? Where is this, where are these industries that we have to produce more, better, um, um, in order um, to get ourselves out of this slump. So I guess it's a question of, I wonder if you could contribute and others might contribute, where is this greater productivity going to come from, if not these new proposed jobs um, from um, Downing Street and the Green Revolution? Okay, thanks very much, Alex. Um, James Petz. You've mentioned that there are things that you think that different things should be done to increase productivity. Uh, what do you think those things are? And what measures instead do you think should be taken in respect of dealing with environmental problems, especially climate change? And what specific effect? Because I note that the government paper that you linked to us to at the beginning has a quantitative um, estimate for each of the individual things that it, it is doing. Do you have any alternative quantitative estimates of things that would be better at doing those things? Right, okay, very good, thanks very much. Um, we now have Richard. Thanks very much, uh, Rob, um, and thanks, Daniel. Um, I, I'm, I'm not gonna ask about the uh, anything economics, I have two questions um, 
about the productivity uh, have already been asked uh, where that might come from. I'm definitely in favor of increasing productivity and increasing uh, what is available to humanity. So I'm on board with that. But I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts about, because I'm not sure that I would want to use the term Great Reset because um, that is increasingly having very sinister overtones as far as I can tell. And there are many people, perhaps not unreasonably, making a link between um, the sort of measures that have been taken to uh, force us uh, into the, the, you know, force us to stay at home, force us to behave in certain ways, force us to do certain things. Uh, which seem to be going a little bit hand in hand with uh, uh, with those who are pro uh, proposing the the Great Reset. So, I'm interested in speculation, perhaps, or even your your insights into what you think might be driving, to use an old-fashioned uh, term, the capitalist class, uh, to argue so strongly uh, for things which seem to be perhaps um, counterproductive in the in the economic sense, but but also have an seem to have an authoritarian element to them because you, you didn't I know this is an economic forum but you didn't speak particularly about the the, author, the potential authoritarian consequences of that so I'm interested in perhaps getting your insights or, or your thoughts on that brilliant thank you very much um uh Andy Shaw Hi. um yeah just in answer to that sorry I didn't catch your name in answer to the last point is what why are the um capitalist class interest in, in this I, th I think that's a really interesting thing because uh, climate change has, has gone has been mainstream for quite a while in government circles uh, and it's now mainstream across the whole of society and particularly amongst uh, the capitalist class my twitter feed is full of uh, financial times adverts uh, sponsored adverts around around climate change and green initiatives um, and uh, i think the, the answer is fairly simple is is they they can smell the money now i mean properly smell the money so you know goldman sachs reckons that the carbon trading is going to be worth 250 billion pounds a year and, that, and that's you know provides talk about low productivity provides negative value uh, to the rest of humanity but they can smell the money um you know if, you, if you're going to get um if you're going to survive as a car industry with all the regulations coming you have to you know uh, get rid of all your your engine plants and buy the batteries in from china and just become an assembly plant it's the only way you're going to survive now uh, if you want to make energy, then you can get, you know, £145 per megawatt hour for building offshore wind turbines rather than £45 if you produce gas, and then you'll have to pay a carbon tax. So the whole, the, the economy is being re-geared around this agenda, you know, in addition to the 10-point plan that Boris put through. Um, so I think that's, I think that's a very simple answer. I think, I think the broader question is, is an interesting one, is that, is that, what climate change does, it's a, it's a fantastic displacement activity on two levels. One is it stops you solving real problems because you, you claim there's a problem of this invisible gas which is going to destroy the earth and that's the, the most important thing. And then everything is geared towards that. So even a very practical things like, you know, when the Calder Valley is flooded because uh, uh, the flood defences aren't built, you can say it's because of climate change or there are forest fires because they're not clearing out the old lumber and not doing proper forest management, you can say it's climate change. So even at, at an environmental level, it, it stops you solving real problems, especially the problem of, you know, getting a really productive economy. But I think that I think the second big displacement activity is it, is it also allows people, allows leaders to not have to find a real sense of purpose and go and argue and, and win people around to that vision. And you can see it really, really easily with you know, Biden coming to power in the States. 
is they're not talking about, well, how do we deal with America? What's our relationship going to be like on a geopolitical level? What political alignments are we going to have? How's trade going to work? People aren't talking about that. They, the first thing they fall back on is he says, you know, yeah, we're climate change. We've got COP26 coming on next year. So we'll all get together around climate change. And it's, and it's a way of not working out what your purpose is and, f and finding a sort of a false sense of purpose and then finding common purpose around that. So, so big, big displacement activity. The last thing I want to say is I think it's most attractive to the people who deliver least value to society. So it is the bureaucratic class who need something to do. It is the academics who get all the funding and produce nothing, nothing yeah. of real value. It is the carbon trading people. It is the people who want to be most away from any sense of accountability, either because they produce something that people want to buy or they have something that people want to listen to. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So I, I, I think I think you can sense that people are, you know, those sorts of people are really attracted to it. Okay, thanks very much, Andy. Um, right now, I'm going to take Martin, and then um, I'm going to um, come back to Daniel because there's quite a lot on the table already. So, Martin. Hi there. Hi. So I guess there are two two points that I want to make. I think I often hear in these discussions that sort of green stuff is framed as a project of the elites. Uh, and I, although that might be nice to say, I, I think it creates real problems in terms of overcoming people's arguments. I think it's pretty difficult to find somebody under 25 that isn't in favour of uh, recycling, anti-plastic, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it runs much, much deeper than just some, some project Davos. That'd be the first point I'd make. The second point was, Ben, you went through various arguments um, that you didn't think were effective about uh, challenging green thinking. And then you landed kind of on the argument of raising productivity. I mean, I would argue that I, I don't think that's a particularly good argument either. And I think the reason for that is that what you will get thrown back at you is externalities. So you can be as productive as you like, but if the cost is externalities, uh, then that's the reason to not do it. And I, I think you therefore need to, to win that argument uh, correctly. And, and I would say it, it goes back to framing. And I, I don't think we've done a very good job of convincing people that, that man is a problem solver. I think we all tacitly buy into the fact that he is kind of a polluter. Uh, but I think the bigger point is a fundamental confusion between raw materials and resources. People constantly mix the two up. So they will tell themselves that things are finite. And of course, what, what, they, what they mean is that uh, raw materials are finite, but of course, resources are infinite. They're the combination of raw materials and fantastic ideas. I think when you convince people that actually uh, resources are infinite, then you're able to shift the debate to something that says, okay, well, what is the environment that maximizes man's input into these raw materials to create maximum resources? So I'm interested in how we shift that debate and reframe things. Okay, thanks very much, Martin. Right, so Daniel, if you'd like to tackle any of that. Yeah, I think maybe I'll focus on the political side of uh, the question because there'd be very important questions asked about how do we get higher productivity, how do we tackle climate change, uh, that kind of thing. But there are, there are other I mean, I'm, I can give my views. I'm quite happy to do that. But there are lots of other people who have views on that in this online discussion, I think. 
but maybe just talk about the political side of it just very briefly, because uh, I certainly think it has a lot of purchase among the public, particularly younger people. I think that's true. I certainly agree with Alex when he says that they've won the argument, at least for the time being. I mean, hopefully we can have some kind of uh, backlash against them. But for the time being, sadly, it doesn't bring me any joy to say this, but I think they've won the argument. But, but what is really driving this green thinking? I think it's true that it's been there since, or it's become the dominant mode of thought since the 1970s. But I think since 2016, the year of Trump and Brexit, it's had an even more of an added impetus. I think it's, it's not primarily the viewpoint of the capitalist class as it happens. I think that the capitalist class is probably very confused at the moment. It's kind of lost its sense of pur purpose and mission. Uh, although, you know, to ex an extent they've taken it on board, it's much more kind of a technocratic, middle-class technocratic perspective. And why does it appeal to those people? Well, first of all, because it is technocratic. When you talk about the environment, and particularly when you talk about climate change, you're really saying, well, you need experts. You can't have the kind of hyper-live making important decisions about politics. You need the experts. You need the technocrats to do it. So it, it appeals to that technocratic mindset. It appeals to the view that says, well, we need global solutions. We can't rely on people within the nation state, on democratic communities within the nation state. We need to have multilateral you know, IMF, World Bank, UN, EU, globalist kind of solutions. So it keys into the view that you can't trust the public, you can't trust ordinary people. You, again, you've got to have experts to look at these things. It gives the elite a sense of purpose because they think they're doing something really, really positive. And I think they really, they really, really buy into it. You know, when, when people talk about this in terms of greenwash, I think that's completely wrong. I think the elites and particularly the middle-class technocratic elites really do buy into this in a very, very big way. And I think there's an additional 2020 element to it, just finally, which is with the fear of rising unemployment, and unemployment is going, has already risen, but it's going to rise a lot more when all these COVID job retention schemes are wound up. They're worried about, you know, what the hell are we going to do about all these unemployed people uh, in, in formerly working in hospitality and other sectors. So that's given a new impetus to these kind of green measures, which are not really new, but they've had a new impetus because of the situation we're in. So I'd say these ideas are very deeply rooted in technocratic politics. Uh, that's very strong nowadays. That's how to understand them. Uh, right, so um, on to um, Para Mullen next. Um, okay. Um, I just wanted to look at it from a business point of view. I think the point has been made that it's pretty much gone mainstream. Uh, the green agenda is something that find many businesses have bought into it. Uh, caring for the planet has become a bit like the mission statement. It's always added in as one of the things that businesses care about. So sustainability, um, you know, looking at uh, car being carbon free, all that has become pretty much what's discussed in business. Um, and the purpose of it is, I mean, everybody buys into it. Uh, so we've got a week where uh, uh, not our employers, but our staff are organizing a week of uh, discussions about um, on uh, the title of the whole week is based, are you tired of climate anxiety? 
and sustainability paralysis. And under this, all sorts of things have come in. When you actually examine the content of it, it is actually about buying local, eating vegan diet, uh, getting milk. And I guess at the end of it, it's all about limiting choice and uh, whether it's your choice, freedom to buy what you like or uh, travel where you like, it's about limiting choice. Um, and, but it's posed in such a positive uh, manner that there is absolutely no questions raised. I think what we've got to try and do is uh, try and um, uh, almost uh, wheedle out the, uh, you know, the what is it that is making us do, which is pretty much in a very subtle way making you, or perhaps not so subtle way, making you think about changing your behavior, your lifestyle, and going back to what Daniel said at the very beginning, it does limit us as humans to do what we want, really. Um, and I think that's part of, well, that is a problem for me anyway. Okay, thanks. I mean, I, I wonder if we need to re recognize a little bit some of the positives as well, or at least be a bit, because so, so far it's been a fairly anti-environmentalist discussion but for example electric cars seem to me to be an entirely sensible idea that um, are cleaner and um, could you know, could be very good in the long run so are, do we, we do we need to sort of look at look at it from the other side of the the fence as well and see what people are attracted to not necessarily big business but other people are attracted to with this kind of agenda anyway I just thought I'd throw that out Chrissy does. Yeah, I want to actually start by plugging this, this book, which I just finished reading, and it is absolutely brilliant. This uh, Michael Schellenberger, Apocalypse Never. Uh, now, he goes through um, all the arguments in lots and lots of detail and comes out in favour of nuclear energy, um, fossil fuels, uh, increasing productivity, industrialisation, etc. And the reason I'm raising him in this discussion is that he uh, is kind of came out of the environmentalist movement. He's got enormous green credentials. Uh, <clears throat> so when someone like him makes these arguments, he absolutely confuses and befuddles the, um, the uh, environmentalist movement. Because <clears throat> when you look at the reviews of this book and other work that he has done, and they simply don't know what to do with it. They can't just dismiss him as a climate change denier or a, uh, as being in the pay of, uh, of the big corporations and the, the, um, the oil companies. So my question really coming out of that is about how can we begin to present arguments? Because we have been attempting this for donkey's years, really. And it's, it's seeming to get more and more difficult to, to get any kind of hearing for the arguments that we are wanting to make. Um, so is there some way that we can ally ourselves with people like Michael Schellenberger, Bjorn Lomberg um, and others um, who have the credentials? That is obviously gonna be a temporary thing because you cannot uh, continue presenting yourself as, a, as an environmentalist when essentially what you are putting forward is an anti-environmentalist 
argument. But for, for, for the time being, is there something that we can do to take advantage of people like that? Okay, thanks very much, Christy. Um, all right, Ella. Thanks, Rob um, and Daniel. Um, Daniel, that point that you made about the uh, that you'd have to keep separate social kind of social policy, so like getting more people to work in care homes, um, with economic policy and how you would, you know, essentially need to be able to afford to enact certain social policies by raising productivity. The great point, but the, the difficulty is it's one of the things that I've been thinking about when I'm arguing about these things um, with people. It's it's hard to not fall into the trap of um, not wanting to sound virtuous about it, but you sort of get muddled with the kind of the anti-capitalist argument that you made, which is that no one really wants to be in the position of arguing for more useless things or more waste. And I was just thinking, I, I'm increasingly infuriated by, I don't know if anyone else has noticed it, there's a kind of boom in, um, in green commercialism, you know, for example, you can subscriptions, you can sign up to get rolls of toilet roll that are wrapped in eco-friendly, God knows what paper or something, um, delivered to your door weekly. Um, you can get, there's a, I was, I mean, I was asking for it because it was in uh, Ali Pali Farmer's Market, but there was a woman giving a demonstration um, about reusable cloth nappies and showing how you would, you know, you'd buy this subscription of reusable nappies and you would wash the shit out of them monthly and how it, you know, it was just the most regressive, wasteful thing. But the, the difficulty then is um, if you, so I always fall back on saying, well, we, we need more, but we need more, you know, jobs in transport. We need to build more buses, better buses. We need better science and R&D. We need more housing and those kinds of things, because you don't, what you don't want to say is we need more chairs or different kinds of chairs, or we need more, you know, more wasteful things. And that's a kind of lazy thing, but how do you how do you deal with the fact that then inevitably it feels like the kind of the social policy aspects are inform what you're arguing for in terms of how to deal with the green side of it? Though those two get get merged for me when I'm arguing about it, and how do I deal with that? Okay, thank you very much. Um, right, so uh, David Axe, if it is David Axe. Hi, it's Hi. actually me. It's me <laughs> and using his account. Um, it's along similar lines to what Ella just said, but maybe from the other angle, because um, since 2019, uh, businesses, who, listed companies have had to report their social and environmental impact in their accounts, their annual financial statements, as part of their director's report. So there's a big, um, push from authority, I suppose, onto business to um, actually present themselves as um, taking part in a not just an environmental, a social and an environmental, what is their social and environmental impact. And today I was listening to another uh, different talk by um, an accountant, and he was saying that um, that actually those questions, social and environmental impact, are much more important than shareholder value. And that that's what's going to um, be the kind of dynamic, that's what accountants should be thinking about is our social and environmental impact and not shareholder value, which has obviously been the traditional way that 
companies you would imagine in a capitalist society would think about themselves. And um, so it seems that um, that the government and um, the accounting bodies and everyone are taking on board uh, this environmental impact. And, and they're, it, it sounds like they're the ones, I think it's as Daniel says, they're, they're confusing um, kind of uh, economic and social and environmental impacts all get mixed up together. But how do you how do you separate it? Because then if you're if I say, oh, I think it's a problem that they're not looking at shareholder value, that makes you sound a little bit um, kind of pro as if you're pro-profit rather than um, caring about uh, social issues. Okay, great. Thank you very much. So I'm going to uh, take Hillary and then I'm going to come back to Daniel to give him a chance to um, comment on some of these points as well. So, Hillary. Our last contribution is right. And, and certainly, you know, lots of things like if you're bidding for public sector contracts, you won't get any of those things unless you've got a, a very clear environmental policy. So I do think this idea that everybody's bought into it is a bit, isn't quite right. I think you have to pretend you've bought into it. Um, you know, be, because that's just what's expected, but that doesn't actually mean you you, you really have. Um, just on the good things uh, argument that you suggested we might just look at, I, I mean, there's a couple of things in that government 10-point plan that I thought looked okay. Um, nuclear power and small nuclear power, I think, is is definitely worth uh, investing in. And, and carbon capture, I, I mean, I might be a bit naive thinking that those, are, those look actually quite good and we should be, be welcoming those things. And then finally, just everybody said that, you know, we are going to have a lot of unemployment. I was in a, a meeting last week with insolvency practitioners and in their um, profession, there's a big um, panic going on around the fact that there just will not be enough insolvency practitioners in 12 months time. The number of businesses that are becoming insolvent. Um, so, you know, it, it just I just to me just feels like a lot of this will just be blown away by the sheer um you know, requirement to, to, you know, put food in people's mouths and, and you know, some of this just won't be um, possible to spend time on anymore. Right, great. Thank you very much. Uh, right. Daniel, your thoughts. Okay. Well, I, I'm still leaving those things about productive industries hanging uh, because, like I say, I'll talk about them, but there's lots of other people who can talk about them in more detail. Uh, I think maybe a couple of things. I, I still think, I mean, there's a confusion, I think, about what environmentalism is, uh, which is not surprising given that it's so prevalent. In fact, one positive thing you can say is that because it's overwhelmingly the consensus at the moment, uh, there's only one way it can go. It can't become any more prevalent than it is. It can only become less prevalent, although we're starting from a very low base if we're critics of it. But I just think there's real confusion. I mean, I know. Uh, Rob, you were trying to promote discussion, but there is this view, okay, well, you're against environmentalism, but don't, don't you want electric cars? Don't you think it's a good idea? Don't you think that, you know, you want, don't you want clean air? Don't you want, you know, clean water and so on? But as I said, I think that completely misunderstands what environmentalism is about. It's not really about uh, liking particular technologies or caring about nature. It's about, fundamentally, it's about holding society back. It's about being very nervous at the very least about raising productivity. So you may say, so Boris Johnson's got this thing in his 10 point plan about increasing uh, nuclear power, which I think is a good thing. 
But almost always what happens is that these things kind of fall by the wayside uh, because there's too much regulation, anxiety, they're seen as not chiming with the, the times. And uh, the more reactionary things come to the fore. So the overwhelming emphasis on, on offshore wind, for example, I'm not saying you should never ever use offshore wind, but offshore wind is hugely expensive. I mean, if you think about the amount of energy you need just to take these huge wind turbines and put them out to sea, I mean, before they generate any energy, you need to use huge amounts of energy. To make them a centerpiece of policy is just completely lunatic from a productivity perspective, but makes sense from an environmental perspective. And I, so I think these people like M Michael Schellenberger, who Chrissy mentioned, Bjorn Lomborg, I mean, they have written interesting books. They're worth reading. There's lots of good empirical material. We should talk to those people, debate with those people. But I think they are fundamentally defensive as well. I mean, they don't really understand the uh, core premises of environmentalism, or if they do, they agree with them. That's why Bjorn Lomborg calls himself a skeptical environmentalist. And Michael Schellenberger writes an apology for environmentalism because he doesn't get to grips with, with what it's really about. Uh, just one other thing, uh, someone, I think Martin talked about externalities and Sally talked about uh, accounts and shareholder value and so on. Again, just for those people, non-economists among you who don't know what externalities are, it just means features of a product that are not normally included in the price. So for example, if you take a car, the price of that car might be say 20,000 pounds, just for the sake of the argument. But the argument would be, well, but that 20,000 pounds doesn't take into account the cost of pollution, which is an additional cost to society. Uh, and I think there's, there are problems with that argument. For example, it doesn't take into account positive externalities. There are very positive externalities which involved with mobility and moving around, driving around, meeting people, traveling and so on. That's one problem with the argument. And also once you start introducing these environmental elements into accounts, which Sally mentioned, and which is a very, very important trend, what you actually end up doing is forcing companies to behave in a particular way. In fact, you end up forcing them to uh, downplay productivity and to upplay all sorts of other kind of environmental uh, features of their business, which in many ways under, undermines their business. So all this kind of introducing environmental elements into accounts, corporate accounts, which is very, very important, I think, as a trend, uh, makes it more difficult for companies to do what they should be doing. So that's not so much defending shareholder value. It's saying that the role of a company should be to produce more. And companies, to the extent they contribute to society, it's by producing things. It's not by saving the planet. That's not the role of companies. That's not what they're there to do. Anyway, there's a lot more I could say, but I'll leave it there, let other people come in and give their views on the subject. Okay, thanks very much, Daniel. Um, so let's go to Kerry next. Thank you very much for that, Daniel and Rob. Um, really useful um, overview. For a couple of things I just want to say. Firstly, I think Daniel, what Daniel says about the capitalist class, if you like, believing in it, believing in environmentalism is very important because I don't quite agree with Andy Shaw's point that it's, you know, they can see the money because I don't think it really works like that. I think, A, we, it's important we understand uh, environmentalism's genesis as an entirely elite project 
from the capitalist class downwards um, from the 70s. And also we, and we can't go into that here, but we also have to understand the extent to which there is, we have a capitalist class who have very little belief in their own system. You know, they really are very unsure of uh, its possibilities. And we have to remember that for a very long time, capitalism and a cap we had a capitalist class who could hold their head up high in opposition um, to the Soviet Union. And without that, there really hasn't been anything that can allow them to walk tall. It seems to have been one disaster after another. And I do think it's important we understand that, that the problem of environmentalism in relation to all social policy and the economy directly is based on seeing a prop humanity as a problem at root. And I think that's critical because, and, and Hillary and other people and Sally have mentioned it, we are faced with really a whole new level, which relates to Richard Ng's point too, of behavioral modification, of behavioral controls. So it marries very nicely um, with authoritarian measures, precisely because we cannot be trusted. Even if the mass of people went along with green thinking, we cannot be trusted to change our behavior, to be less wasteful and to do the stupid things, very stupid, in fact, the antithesis of productivity, very stupid things like recycling on an individual level, in an individual house, our own waste, completely uh, unproductive activity that might be worth doing on an industrial scale in terms of ship breaking, but make no sense at all in terms of washing out your plastic bags. And I think we also need to recognize that as things are gonna get so much worse next year, this is the perfect uh, explanation and means of making us accept less and to have less. You know, th this great reset you know, couched in, in a belief in saving the planet can big up me, us making these sacrifices. Obviously, we've seen it all as our sacrifices to not kill granny and to save ourselves and our fellow human beings. But with that over and a vaccine on the cards, we will still have authoritarian measures because we've accepted so many and a viewpoint that says having less uh, is better for the planet. And I do think there's two things we have to do. Firstly, we can't afford to shy away from challenging the core underpinnings of environmentalism in order to talk about the sort of growth that we want economically. And secondly, I think we should be very blunt in saying to people, and which is what I do with hundreds of young people who are absolutely, you know, besotted with... Uh, um, you know, all the climate and XR rebellion lot, um, and they see this as their way of life, we should say to them, do you want to be poorer? Because that's what this has done for the whole, a whole 70% of the developing world who still live a subsistence life. That is what this means. Do we want to be poorer? And uh, I, don't, I don't know what else we can do, but I think Daniel's honesty and being upfront about it is a critically important start. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Kerry. Um, right, uh, Phil Mullen. Thanks, Rob. Uh, thanks very much, um, Daniel. That's, that was a very useful, uh, uh, helpful introduction. I, I suppose I want to pick up on some of Kerry's points because I think uh, what she said about the link with COVID is very pertinent to 
some of the themes that have come up about how we can develop our arguments against this, because you know Daniel's established the foundation very well in terms of the problems with the uh, the, the green the green outlook. Um, and I think we need to recognize that, as he and others have said, these arguments have been building up for, you know, for a long, long time. Uh, they've got a, you know, a long historical genesis. But I think we have to grasp that they have sort of matured in a way over the course of the last four or five years. And I think, especially through the experience of, of COVID, that it's got to a stage now where the green agenda has become, I would say it's pretty much the organizing principle for uh, the way uh, governments in the West operate. Because just by every issue that they might want to pick up or not pick up is now being framed through uh, the, the, the green recovery is a way of dealing with this, whether it's to do with urban planning, whether it's to do with inequality, whether it's to do with uh, 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 creating jobs, whether it's to do with crumbling infrastructure, whether it's to do even with geopolitics and national security. Everything is now being framed through uh, the green agenda in a way which, as Daniel said, is not as if everyone is focused in government on uh, cutting carbon emissions, but it is a very helpful way for them to make uh, a contact with, uh, with society and then to feel that they've got something to say to society. Uh, somebody earlier was saying, like Martin was saying that, you know, how many young people spontaneously identify with these sort of uh, with these sort of ideas because that's the way many young people have been socialized through the education system and so on um, but I think that's important because it means that the government feels that they they can uh, grab hold of something which is I got the appearance of being progressive and egalitarian and inclusive and so on and all those nice buzzwords and they can uh, package it through uh, the, the notion of the uh, of the green recovery uh, and so I think the points that Kerry were making are give us a way into some of the arguments that we need to use now, not just the arguments about productivity and uh, uh, which Daniel has, 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 has charted out, but also the, the way in which life has changed over the last year in terms of the way governments have become more legitimized in their illiberal, in their illiberal uh, uh, measures. And I think there's a way in which uh, the green agenda is being seen as like COVID permanently, you know, in the same way that COVID was an emergency which could be used to justify certain ways of behaving. In, in a sense, the thing about climate change, and I'm not saying this is, a, is a necessarily a very conscious thing, but it's an attractive thing for them because this is like a persistent permanent emergency. And there isn't even a vaccine, you know, a, a, a around the corner to resolve it. This is something in which we have to organize all our lives around is, is the message that is coming out. And I think that draws out the, the, uh, the, the likelihood, at least for the next couple of years, that this is going to take a very liberal form. So we can get, you know, we can, we can look into things like the investment in electrification and batteries and, and, and better forms of transport and so on. But in the, in the next period, it's going to be high, the sort of governing measures that we've seen over the last nine months are translated into the green agenda, which is a thing I think we think we have to be pointing out and challenging. You know, Daniel, just to give an example, I mean, Daniel gave the example of the, uh, the way uh, uh, local councils have reorganized the road system around, around mobility uh, or around restricting, you know, car mobility. Uh, and, you know, that, that was it's quite, in, quite uh, striking how quickly that spread. I don't know outside London, but certainly in London boroughs to do that. And that sort of, you know, what was seen as a, a natural, necessary thing to do in response to the crisis, because it is green, 
because it can stop people going back into cars, because we can discourage people from taking cars because at the moment they're scared of public transport and so on. And we can promote, you know, a healthy lifestyles and so on. That sort of justification we can see for other things. We can, we can, we'll see it in terms of carbon taxes of some form that this has to be introduced because it's a, an emergency which we have to deal with. And that's gonna hit a lot of people ultimately in terms of higher consumer prices for things. Uh, in terms of you know, having to, to not be able to buy uh, internal combustion engine cars, we have to buy electric vehicles, which happen to be more expensive uh, than, than, uh, than uh, the old fossil fuel vehicles, or that we have to uh, transform our homes in the way that Daniel was saying. It's not just that it's a, a low productivity thing to do to retrofit, but it's more the compulsion side of it and the, 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 the regulation side of it that we're gonna to have to get rid of our gas boilers. We're gonna to have to insulate our homes, you know, cut down our cavity walls and do all this. And th this, the, these things will be justified in terms of the intrusiveness into our lives because of the apparent attractiveness uh, of the green agenda. So I think in a, in a subliminal way, just to conclude, I think they'll be drawing lessons governments, not just in Britain, but across the Western world, drawing lessons from high they benefited in some ways from the COVID emergency and seeing how they can transpose that into the green emergency as a way of trying to create some social cohesion, some social contact, you know, it seems to be popular with young people and so on. It, it, it plays, it ticks all those boxes really for them in a way which uh, uh, allows them to try to in this uh, scenario, which is Kerry and Andy and others have said, they're pretty purposeless, but it gives a, a direction for government in a way which they seem to have some contact with society. And it's the intrusiveness of it, it's the liberalism of it, which is I think the area we should focus in on as the contemporary argument against it and draw out that undemocratic side of it. Right, okay, thanks very much, Phil. Some very good points in there. I agree wholeheartedly with a lot of that, in fact, all of it. Um, uh, right, so there's a lot of hands up now. So I'm gonna try and get through as many people, as, in fact, try and get through everybody that does mean we're going to have to be a little bit uh, briefer now in our points. So, Paul Reeves, if you'd like to take the floor. I'm assuming you can hear me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'd just almost like to help um, Daniel out a bit on the productivity thing, because it's obviously quite a dry term. Um, but I'd just like to point out productivity, important as it is, isn't just about producing more stuff or even better stuff. They're both important. But if we look around today what a lot of people are talking about around pubs socializing and culture just to put some flesh on the bones i guess productivity productivity or increasing rates of productivity have an important impact on culture just as a couple of examples i've come across the modern novel as it exists largely wouldn't exist due to uh, if it wasn't for raises in productivity there's a connection between the the massive expansion in the markets for novels and the requirement for novelists come through the expansion of the railways. People needed things to do on trains. Um, similarly, even more bizarrely, the modern piano. Everyone used to prat about on wooden harpsichords before the Industrial Revolution. The modern piano exists because of in improvements in metallurgy, basically steel. It meant you, you could have a, a steel frame on a piano. So essentially, ultimately, productivity produced new and better sounds. So. The, my key point is, it's not just the stuff. It actually has important consequences on culture. And ultimately, these things were never seen at the time. You know, no one was increasing productivity thinking they were going to produce novels or the piano. They came out because these things occurred. So my 
to end, my key point is that productivity ultimately isn't just a dry thing. It's something that can actually deliver on things that we've never even thought of could happen in the future. And I think we need to market that in a in a more positive, better way. Just you know, it's just a historical thing, but I think we need to do something to uh, sell productivity. I guess. Okay. Through thanks God. very much. Here, here, here for for productivity. Um, uh, Mo, Mo love it. Funnily enough, I was going to talk about productivity too, um, because um, economics is not necessarily my strong point, but I do understand that in order to create wealth, you need to have a rise in productivity. And whether you're left or right, whether you think there's a trickle down in wealth or whether you think wealth should be redistributed, you have to produce the stuff in order for everyone to have a better quality of life. And what's really struck me with the COVID um, stuff and the COVID argument and whether or not people should be furloughed and whether or not people should be permitted to go out and be product productive and to, to take their jobs is there seems to be a real lack of understanding, particularly, sadly, on the left, that somehow, you know, all right, the Tories did find their magic money tree, but it ain't going to last forever. And there seems to have been, there seems to be a real... I mean, I'm saying I'm not very good at economics, but really generally in society, there doesn't seem to have been um, this um, a feature of the conversation is how on earth we're going to recover from COVID and what, where the central place, place of productivity sits within that argument. So I, I just wondered why Daniel and others think that is. Right, right. Thanks very much. Um, uh, I've got Ian next. Yeah, the point I wanted to raise was, I suppose, in relation to there being two separate things going on here. One is actually addressing the problem of climate change. And the second one is the sort of green agenda. The first one is really you know, between two extremes of we do nothing or you know, we effectively stop using all fossil fuels immediately and pretty much bring society to a halt. Where between those two extremes, do we do something now and every year up until say the end of the century or you know maybe about 2070 when by that time the temperature will have doubled so we're going to have to spend some amount of money on adapting to climate change because the temperature's already gone up one degree it's going to go up two degrees because we're not doing enough to stop that so adaptation you know is apparently supposed to cost something slightly less than five percent of world gdp but on top of that we need to spend some some money in order to address the problem. And I suppose, you know, if you take the sort of real advocates of the green agenda, they want us to do an awful lot right now. But, you know, is it more sensible to say, well, I tell you what, you know, if we put a load of money into R&D and R&D is comparatively cheap to a lot of these options, perhaps in 10, 20 years, we'll have a far better technology that you know, can be adopted purely because it's the best idea. I mean, rather bizarrely, Donald Trump has actually done a large amount to address US climate change because he swapped from coal or he threw fracking. They've swapped from coal to gas. Gas is a lot more environmentally friendly than coal. So, you know, and they didn't move to that because of the green agenda or they signed up to the Paris Climate Accord. They changed to it because it made economic sense. So 
I think, you know, there's a balance to be struck in there. But if that's what it was all about, we wouldn't have this huge fuss. What what is driving that is a political um, agenda over what is, you know, what else can we do to transform societies? This has been discussed. All right. Well, we really well, should separate the, the two things, or at least be explicit. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. Th th thanks, yeah, Ian. Sorry, I'm, we should just to finish. We should. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go, I've got to move on. Um, so, uh, Joe Hurley. A um, couple of questions. Then is one is um, I, I think that last point is quite important because. I want to know more specifically, um, in terms of addressing the question about tilting at windmills, I think a little bit like the COVID thing, we've got to actually say what is and isn't a problem. So is it the case that there is a, um, um, an environmental problem? And if it is a bit like COVID, we've got to by now have a sense of saying what exactly is that environmental problem. And I think with the COVID thing, there was quite a lot of things that said actually probably we might have underestimated things or, or whatever at the start. So I think there is something where there needs to be some straightforward, what is the problem? If there is a problem, we then have to say, therefore, what are the what are the potential routes to solving that problem? So I don't think you can just talk about product raising productivity in general, even if we know that that might be the, the sort of panacea for lots of different problems, you still have to be able to say, thereby you will address that problem. Or you say, um, it's not a problem, this is the problem. And, I, and so I think somehow there's something, the lesson for me from COVID is that you have to be able to confront and, and deal with the argument directly and then talk about therefore how you would then prioritize the issues. And I'm therefore wondering two sides. One is by saying that again, through COVID, there have been all sorts of different inequalities and issues that have raised that begin to start saying, well, where would society want to invest its resources and its productivity and its ingenuity to solve problems, whether it's housing, whether it's all sorts of things. And there is a massive, I think what COVID's also done is it's brought much more like the economic crisis did, it brought much more to the forefront of politics, how people understand the variegation in society across the way, different ways that we live and how we have different impacts. My question, um, my last question is on the question of the vaccine. I'm wondering, um, Daniel, whether you think that's, I think it's a great example because it potentially um, encompasses two ways that people look at ingenuity and productivity today. On the one hand, there's a long list of positives. It addresses the question of pharma, manufacturing, supply chains, global uh, ingenuity, global supply chains, and then the slashing through regulation and the question of speed. On the other hand, what's really interesting is it also talks about not-for-profits and you sort of think that probably keys in with a lot of things in the way that current sentiment is, that is, a, is an attack on big pharma. And I'm wondering again if something like that is an interesting example to explore about something that's been brilliant in terms of ingenuity and raising productivity but politically might also hold some of the problems that we're experiencing and how people perceive how growth can happen. Right, okay, very good. Very good, uh, interesting point there about vaccine in particular. Um, uh, Dominic Standish. Yeah, thanks Daniel for a great introduction. Um, I agree very much with your sentiments that too little of the discussion is focused on production. It seems to me that the only exception 
that is the discussion of producing more efficiently in terms of energy. Um, unless you see uh, other examples where there is actually a discussion of uh, production and productivity. But to me, uh, part of the problem is that too much of the discussion is focused on consumption. I think some great examples have been given of how uh, green thinking has increasingly restrained us in relation to consumption. Uh, Kerry's points on recycling, uh, also issues around uh, congestion. Um, a lot of these measures seem to be kind of creeping in. Another one that came in in the UK last year was that uh, landlords will have to do electrical checks on uh, apartments that they let out uh, over the next year, which will require um, a lot of investment in insulation and changing wiring. A lot of that is also uh, very important uh, uh, around kind of green issues, which will be very costly. And I think uh, what we'll see is that the COVID crisis will speed up many of those kind of creeping restrictions on consumption and adding costs. So um, Daniel mentioned the additional costs around uh, traveling. Um, I think we can also see in international traveling, uh, many countries are already requiring a negative COVID test to enter your country, uh, which can often be uh, very, very costly. Uh, Phil mentioned the issue of boilers and electrical cars. Uh, I think we're going to see more and more of these areas around consumption, uh, adding costs around uh, the green agenda, and undoubtedly COVID will kind of speed up uh, those trends. We, you know, obviously after 9/11, we accepted many of the kind of uh, big restrictions around international travel, slowing us down, added regulations. Um, I wonder to which uh, COVID will also add additional restrictions and taxes on international travel. Right, okay, so just to let you know where we are. So I've got Steve, Monica, Nico and John, and then I'll come back to Daniel to um, sum up. So, uh, Steve. Um, yes, I, I enjoyed the talk as well, but um, I've been thinking about the particularly about growth versus no growth or, or degrowth. Or, or shrinking of, of output. And that's certainly interesting, but it's in some ways not the most interesting question. Um, it, the argument may not have been made, but there is an argument to be made for plenty of growth, more productivity, higher living standards, reducing poverty and all of those things. But there's a, lots of different ways you can do that, some of which will have different environmental consequences. And those will depend on what kinds of goods and services are produced, not just how much of them. Um, more care home places has very different effects from more SUVs, for example, um, and perhaps even more critically production methods. And you can imagine environmentally pretty benign production methods for double the output or environmentally very damaging production methods for double the output. So um, I, I kind of I'm not at all challenging the, the importance of growth and the arguments about whether that's that's safe or, or, or advantageous or not. But I think it's only part of the problem. I think the growth of what produced how and for whom and who benefits from growth are also really important. Presentation, which was great, was called downsides to a green recovery. But my question is downsides, downsides for whom? Because if we remember how COVID-9 began, it began because human beings um, kind of dragged a load of bats along to a market and insisted on bringing them into an environment which was not theirs. 
And I really do believe that COVID-19 was a way of nature saying enough is enough, you've abused us enough, um, that's it. And I'm not a fanatical environmentalist. I believe in that it would have to come gradually. But I think it was a warning and I think that we need to take account of it. And in terms of productivity and um, ingenuity, I don't see why human beings with their inventiveness and brilliance cannot adapt to produce things that will be equally profitable and successful. Um, I think it's a mindset and we have to get our mindset around it. And as for the costs and sacrifice that we'll be making in our homes and our cars, we will get help with that. But I think to have a doom and gloom attitude to it when actually we're the ones that have abused the planet when you look at it and we weren't actually here first, nature was here first. So I think nobody's mentioned that so far, but I think it's a very important point. Right, thanks, Monica. Thanks for providing a different side to things. Um, right, uh, so Nico McDonald. Um, yeah, I wanted to pick up on a point that Phil Mullen made uh, about uh, climate change. So I think the idea, I find the narrative about climate change and the, a lot of the um, expressions around it, like saving the planet, very, I can't believe people use these phrases because they actually sound like they're you know, it's a sort of satire. But I think the lack of definition of climate change allows it to be something which is like the peace process. If you remember the peace process in, uh, you know, Israel, Palestine and Northern Ireland, it just goes on indefinitely and it's a process. So it's a sort of ideal political structure because, you, you know, there's never any resolution because everything's so ill-defined. Um, and I just wanted to pick up on the point about externalities, which um, Martin referred to uh, in the context of materials and resources, which I thought was a really important definition to, uh, to make or differentiation. There's a famous quote from Sheikh Yaki, uh, Zaki Yamani, who was the Saudi oil minister. It may be apocryphal, but it's quite uh, profound. And he said the Stone Age didn't end for the lack of stone and the oil age will end long before the world runs out of oil. And underlying that is the point that, and this speaks to what Monica was just saying, the reason that we progress is that we invent, innovate, create new and better ways of doing things. And one of the externalities of that tends to be that we uh, you know, improve the quality of the world and life for people. Uh, and that's not motivated by a kind of negative, let's save the planet. Uh, and the last point I wanted to make is that essentially the Save the Planet narrative says things as they are now are as good as they will ever be. And we just need to desperately try and save things so that we can retain things as they are. Of course, for most people, things as they are now is pretty terrible. Um, and not least in the developing world where the idea of development has been relegated by international organisations in the West for 30 years now. And I wonder if in the narratives that we have about slavery and reparations, uh, which do recognize the relationship of the West to the developing world as being exploitative, uh, an argument to be made is, well, if we want to make reparations for slavery, then we should be facilitating economic growth and development, infrastructure development, new industries in the developing world. That would be the appropriate 
humane thing to be doing. Uh, and I wonder how that argument might sit with particularly young people who we've discussed today. Uh, John, John Rowland. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, Tuppence worth here. And I, th I think it, it cuts across a number of the comments that have been made. Um, if we are accepting that carbon is actually a problem and therefore we do need to do something about it uh, and it is a challenge, I think fundamentally there's an issue in that we, we do not uh, embrace uh, sound quantification. Um, so um, this le leads us into situations where we uh, seek disproportionate uh, um diminishing returns so you know we've had examples in the discussion uh patching up victorian houses uh moving coal to to gas um with sound quantification we may well find it would take an awful lot of we'd have to patch up an awful lot of victorian houses in order to equal the closure of one coal-fired power station and I think this is fundamentally lacking from the argument. And uh, if we had greater awareness of this, we might not spend quite so much time washing out our polythene bag. That's all, thanks. Uh, James Woodhausen has snuck in at the back. Um, so I'm going to um, let him say his piece briefly and then we'll bring, come, come back to Daniel. Well, two very brief points, Rob. Thank you so much. Uh, I just want to underline what Phil said, if I had him right, which is, this new stage of environmentalism buttressed by COVID is going to lead to all the austerity and prices and, and so on. And also the social differentiation that colleagues have spoken about, but it is a strongly anti-democratic turn. In the wake of COVID, you know, it's not just an economic question anymore. It's a question of, I think if you saw the Tory graph this week, you know, these cycle lanes get five cyclists an hour, maybe one cyclist an hour. You know, is that democratic? Is it not repressive on motorists, the disabled and people have said? So the democratic issue is very important. Second, secondly, just on the choice of technique where colleagues have made some very good points, right? In my uh, election campaign of fond memory, I came upon a, a widely opposed by Greens um, incinerator which burnt local rubbish and normally since I hate the Greens and their opposition to progress I'd have said no 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 incinerate away but it just turned out that there was no discussion on the filters of this product or this installation there's no discussion of the fact that two schools were near it and there's no discussion uh, no discussion the democratic question uh, on whether it was what it claimed to be an energy recovery facility. And the answer is it didn't recover barely any energy, right? It was just sort of burning stuff because they're a very weak way compared with nuclear, as colleagues will know, of recovering energy. So in this case, I was against the incinerator because as colleagues have hinted, not every innovation is the real deal. This was a complete stitch up. So we have to be sensitive to the individual details and the choice of technique. Not every kind of growth is great growth, right? But we have to spell out what we do want. And we have to make sure that the people have the last say that it's not imposed by fiat, which has been the rule with 
uh, cycle lanes and everything else with local authorities. Right. Okay. Thank you, James. Um, right, Daniel, the floor is yours to pick up anything you want to to close the show. Okay. Uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, I mean, lots and lots of interesting points to have been made. Lots of things to think about. Just to come back on a few of them. I mean, I, I agree very much with. James, who just spoken, uh, Phil, Kerry, Dominic, uh, both in terms of the authoritarian aspect of the green agenda and the fact that the practical consequence of it is austerity and a much worse austerity than uh, what is thought of as conventional austerity. And of course, these things are, are related because if you're going to cut people's living standards, which in effect is what, is what is being done. It's not kind of hypothetical, it's actually happening now and will carry on happening uh, over this whole COVID uh, period. Then most people are not gonna accept it voluntarily. At least most people are gonna be you know, pissed off or they're gonna resist it, even if they buy into the green agenda. I mean, there's a few exceptions, but there is a tension between the desire to impose austerity on society and freedom. And basically the only way you can really do it is by restricting freedom for people uh, in, in different kinds of ways, even if it's forcing them to pay higher energy bills and to accept regulations on where they can drive and so on, and lots of other ways too. Uh, so the downsides, Monica asked, who, who are the downsides for? I mean, I think the downsides of this agenda are for the vast majority of the world's population. Uh, it's very, very clear where most people live in the developing world, but even in the West, you know, people are going to, uh, or most people anyway, are going to suffer a squeeze on their living standards and their rights are going to be infringed in many different ways. In terms of Alex's very early question about the industries that are going to, or could potentially become more productive, I saw mentioned Matt Ridley's book, which I think is very good on this, and we've discussed it in a previous economic forum. But I mean, you can identify different sectors. I mean, people now are very excited about biotech and pharma and so on. But it could even be that existing sectors like whatever, hospitality or sectors considered conventional and boring can be reorganized in different ways which are more productive than they are now. Uh, so it's, it's not really that useful for me to kind of speculate on what they might be, but I'm sure there's a potential to do that. If we had more time, we could talk more about it. On climate change, it's not the other James, James Petz, I think referred to in the chat about uh, denying the science of climate change and how do you see it? I mean, I think it's not really, the way I would see it is that climate change is a problem. I don't think, it's, I don't think there's a climate emergency, which is the way it's normally posed, but I think it is a genuine problem but I think the, the mainstream discussion about how to deal with it is essentially to say people need to make do with less. Of course, it's not usually posed in that way. It's usually posed in terms of mitigation. That's the kind of polite way of putting it. Uh, but that's really about kind of curbing consumption, for example, putting taxes on air flights and so on, lots of other measures too. And I would say that, in fact, the mainstream view on tackling climate change is the exact opposite of what is needed to tackle climate change to the extent that climate change is a problem. Because if, for example, we're going to decarbonize the world's energy supply, if we're going to have a lot more emphasis, for example, on nuclear fission and possibly nuclear fusion in the future, and have other clean forms of energy, perhaps carbon capture and storage, we're not getting, we don't want 
to restrict people's living standards and restrict society's output, and I talked about that a lot because this is the economy forum, what we need to do is to make society wealthier and have a greater output so we can afford to do that. So the mainstream discussion on climate change, in my view, is just completely wrong. It's not, it's not the science which is wrong. It's a kind of intellectual and political framework in which it's put, which is all about uh, imposing austerity on people and uh, restricting consumption rather than making a more productive society so we can have better technology to deal with these problems. Finally, I think the real challenge, which I think Paro alluded to earlier on as well, is that green thinking is normally posed nowadays in a very positive kind of way. So it's posed as something that is egalitarian, humanistic, forward thinking, positive. And if you're against it, you're a kind of denier and a conservative and a reactionary and so on. And I would argue if, if you really scratch the surface of green thinking, and this is what I was trying to do in my introduction, you begin to see that the opposite is the case, that although it's posed in humanistic terms, it's a completely reactionary, anti-democratic, anti-human political perspective. That's essentially what it is. It's a particular political perspective rather than the view on air or plants or water or whatever. And I think what we need to try and do is to draw out that tension. So to say, yes, yeah, they, they can talk in these humanistic terms very often, but the reality of what is being proposed by mainstream green ideas, so again, I'm not talking about tree huggers, I'm talking about mainstream ideas in British politics and American politics and the EU. These are completely reactionary, anti-democratic, anti-freedom, anti-prosperity ideas. And we need to really bring out the tension between the rhetoric, which sounds very positive, and the reality, which I would argue is extremely negative. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Daniel. Uh, we will now have the traditional end of Zoom call attempt to have a round of applause. So thank you very much. Daniel. Well, Daniel.